swing and a fly ball, pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner, Conine towards the wall, leaping and he got it! What a grab by Jeff Conine! Conine swings in the first pitch, high fly ball left field, deep, it's up, up and away, a home run for Jeff Conine! Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. In right field, there's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. Past the diving Eric Carlos into right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. Today is Thursday, September 2nd. It's 5.30 evening. A little bit of a later start for us because I was scouring New York City for my wallet and did not find it. Had to take the city bike because the subways are flooded. It's a little bit of a mess here in New York. I just got out here about a week or two ago. I was stressing about the expensive coffee. Now I don't have a wallet. (laughs) Now I don't have transportation. And, uh, I love it here, I guess, but I'm adjusting, Jeff. I know you were in New York for a minute as a Met, but I don't know if you had to do this whole transition here. Uh, yeah, it's craziness. Uh, I didn't because I know you know Boog Shambi, right? Of course. Uh, ESPN, great. Uh, he was with the Marlins when I first was with the team doing radio and then got on TV and just uh, one of my favorite broadcasters of all time. Uh, just an awesome dude. And he actually let me stay in his apartment. Um, <laughs> no way. Cause I was only with the Mets for a month. Um, and while they were, he was on the road basically doing ESPN gigs. We were at home for like a two week stretch. I was only going to be there for two weeks. He's like, Hey dude, my apartment's available right now. Why don't you stay in it? So I got to stay in his pad, uh, when I, with my time with the Mets, which was awesome. Uh, it was right down there and, uh, village area, I think, or Tribeca. I don't even know those Soho somewhere around there. It was, is a, is a great spot, but, uh, he hooked me up big time. And, um, but I never really got, uh, too used to the New York life and my sister-in-law lives there. So I've been there plenty of times and, um, kind of gotten to know all those subway lines and all that stuff, but I've never been through anything, what you're going through right now. And that's just uh, must be <laughs> a, utter chaos. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a little bit on me. I, I probably should have like a bag or something fell out of my pocket, but it, it does make me think a little bit. You imagine the Brandon Nimmo's of the world who came from Wyoming and now he's in this big city. No, I mean, that's, imagine. that's a big transition. I mean, it, it's even the little things. Every time I go to my apartment after about 10 PM, we're next to a restaurant and they put all the trash out several times a week. And it's right <laughs> in front of our, of I know our, where this is going. Yeah, You know where this is going. It, they are rampant. They are rampant. They're everywhere, everywhere. And, and of course, sometimes I can't get the key out and they're like running all around me and, it's a lot. It's a transition. It's definitely a transition. And by they, for those who may not have picked up, I was talking about the rats and they're huge and they're the size of, of literal cats. And uh, that's an adjustment too. There are a lot of good things and redeeming qualities about this city. And I think if you're an athlete in this place and you're prime, it's awesome. I'm sure. I'm sure it's one of the coolest things in the world. Uh, could be or could not be. It could or could not be, right? And that's we're gonna discuss that. Exactly. <laughs> there, you're getting good with the uh with the lead-ins here, with the teases, and that's exactly where we're going. It's not great for the Mets right now. It's not great at all. Uh, it's good for the Yankees, not the Mets. And Javi Baez, not quite from Wyoming, goes from Chicago and Cubs, which is a fan base that, you know, you're going to get acclimated to dealing with all those different types of things. 
And he has not handled, I would say, the what comes with the territory of New York fans very well. And uh, we know about the whole thumbs down thing. I think that doesn't really need to be rehashed, but I'll just briefly talk about the context of that for those who may have been living under a rock for the last week. But basically, Mets have been understandably getting booed. Javi Baez and Lindor have understandably been getting booed because they have been bad and the Mets have been bad and fans pay a lot of money to go watch them play. And they made a lot of promises and they have not lived up to those promises. Their reaction to getting booed was then to, in their own words, boo the fans back. What are your thoughts on that? And we're going to go beyond just what your thoughts are on that, but I kind of just want to leave the floor to you here. Yeah. Well, uh, it's an awful, horrible situation all the way around. Um, you know, you, you look at Baez coming from Chicago, Chicago has a rabid fan base and basically if you put on a Cubs uniform, you're pretty much adored and loved. Uh, I don't think performance aside, regardless of what you do, they, they just love their baseball team. They love, uh, their players, New York, on the other hand, yes, they love their players. They love their teams, but you better be doing pretty well because they will let you know when you're not doing well. When you stink, they're going to let you know you stink. And that's part of the, ter- that's part of the territory that, that goes with it. So if you don't want to get booed and you don't want the fans against you, you got to play better. That's all there is to it. So for Baez and Lindor to do what they did, they gave the thumbs down to the fans after being booed. They do something great, scored a run, and they do this to the fans. What do you think that's going to do? You think they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you got us now. You're right. We're going to start being nice to you. No, or even <laughs> that is going to stoke the fire even more because New Yorkers do not forget and they do not forgive when you do something like that. That guy will get booed in New York for the rest of his baseball career, maybe even his life. Even and if he breaks, even what I if he don't, goes off. Even if he goes off, there's always going to be that. They're going to be waiting for you to screw up just so they can do it again. I guarantee you, because the Mets are so far from winning a World Series right now. They're so far from going to the playoffs right now that this team is going to toil for quite some time. And Javi Baez better be the most model citizen ever and be an all-star from here on out, or else he's going to hear those boo birds every single time he takes the field. That's just the way it is in New York especially when you do something like that to spite the fans. And I, I just didn't get that. Uh, I also didn't get having his kid in the press conference afterwards yeah. when they're never going to be asking tough questions. I don't know if maybe he thought that they would uh, ask less tough questions because his child is sitting right there, but I'm sorry, but that's your workplace. A kid has no business in any post-game interview whatsoever. Maybe okay on the field after a, a winning a championship and everyone's happy and, but after something like that happens to have your child in there, I was totally against that as well. It was almost like a safety blanket, right? Like, right. So oh, they're going to be they're going to be softer on me now because my child is sitting right here, and I'm going to hopefully get less of a response because my child is sitting right here. But no, I thought that was a poor decision to have the kid in there, and you know what? He should own up to what he did, and these fans are going to let him know, and they're going to let him have it for a long time. So you never put uh, you never brought Griff or, or Tucker <laughs> or Sierra into the press conference. No, no. I mean, Sierra was the cutest kid ever. I I probably could have won over a lot of hearts if I did that, but I wouldn't put her through that. But you know what? If I'm playing poorly and my team's playing poorly and I get booed, I deserve it. I deserve it. I am play to play the game of baseball is up to my capability as well as I can. And if I'm going through a horrible stretch, the fans were entertainers. The fans 
have they don't have the right to say whatever they want to me, but I I expect a negative reaction sometimes when I go out there, and I'm not holding it against them. Fans are fans, and they're going to be passionate about the game. They're going to be uh, maybe a few seven dollar beers deep and want to do whatever and, and boo. Hey, when I start playing better, I hope they cheer for me. Exactly. And, and that's the thing is when Doran's up scoring from first in that next game, uh, the Marlins found a, a very impressive way to blow that one. They were up, I believe it was 5-1 with one out in the ninth inning and lost. Uh, when Dor came all the way around from first to score on a routine base hit into left, which I just wrote a whole thing about this, just putting all my thoughts out there because it was really frustrating. But the Marlins had a catcher in left. Like they legitimately had their starting catcher and left. And unfortunately he bobbled it. And that's where Baez comes in. And that's where Baez is valuable. He was on first. He was motoring, motoring. He knew there was a catcher and left and he scored on that thing after he bobbled it. Like that's what you do. That's how you win the fans back. You hustle, you do all of those little things. And that's what Baez is known for. Yeah. He's going to strike out, but he's going to make the big plays. He's going to take that extra base. I, the, the one play that sticks in my mind that makes me want to like him more is when he ran back towards home. Do you know what I'm talking about against the oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, like who puts that much effort? Most of the time, these guys put their arms up. They're like, tag me. He does all of that. Looked like the most exhausting play in baseball history. And he created something for his team. Like yep. that's a likable player. But where he digressed from that, I think personally, my take on it is, is you kind of touched on it. In Chicago, you're revered. You don't deal with the adversity. Uh, you don't deal with the the fans turning on you as much. And I think he was a little bit spoiled. He gets here, he gets a few boo birds, and he, and he can't handle it. John Carlos Stanton went 0 for 5 in his debut with the Yankees with three Ks, and they booed him in his freaking debut. Did Stanton pout, cry, do anything after that? No. He got back on the field, and you know, he started a little shaky. He's having his best year as a Yankee right now, and he's a big reason of why they are where they are. And he's been getting plenty of flack in the press, and you don't see a word from Stanton. So that's something to me. Some people can't handle New York. And what's crazy now is people assumed, oh, the Mets are just going to extend Lindor. I mean, excuse me, extend Baez because of Lindor. But now I don't know if that happens. Do you think that this pretty much puts an end to any extension opportunity? Or at the end of the day, is this just background noise? Oh, no, it's not background noise. I think it's a legitimate concern for the Mets front office when they see a, a, a guy like Baez that emotional about how the fans are going to react to him on the field. That, Like I said, that's going to keep happening in New York. They are never going to let that down. Um, when you're playing poorly as a team or as a player, they're going to let you know it. And if he can't handle it, if he can't handle the heat, you got to get out of the kitchen. And uh, he doesn't belong in New York if he can't handle that. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting to see how that all affects everything. And, and the Mets, don't forget, they gave up their first-round pick from 2020 for to get this guy. And now he might be gone. They might not make the playoffs, probably won't make the playoffs. And that's pretty much they just burned their 2020 first-round pick for no reason. And that's why the Mets are where they are, uh, one of many reasons. Uh, but for you, did you ever have a moment – it doesn't even have to be – by yourself, specifically targeting Jeff Conine. But did you ever have a moment where your team or a specific group or whatever it was, was maybe attacked by the fans, booed, uh, criticized, writers, whatever it may be? Did you ever have that moment or stretch of of just detractors in your baseball career? 
Well, remember, I played in New York the last year of my career, and I was part of the most prolific collapse of all time. We had a seven-game lead with 17 games to play, and we ended up not, not making the playoffs that year. So, yes, um, New York hit you at all sides. I mean, the media is on you. Uh, they really aren't uh, the most positive of a uh, group of people as far as covering their sports team, especially when you're going south. And the, the fans were against us. You know, they were booing us at the same time. So uh, it's a it's a difficult environment to play, and you really have to – it takes a special guy to be able to block all that out. When you succeed in New York, I mean, you look at, you know, a guy that I play with, David Wright. This guy was a master at just blocking out the noise and performing on the field. And unfortunately for him, you know, the injuries just uh, overtook his career. Like you said in a prior episode that you would have loved to see this guy just finish out his career uh, as New York Mets. Cause we're talking about a potential hall of fame type guy that uh, was on that kind of track and just a likable uh, guy that played his butt off every single time he went on the field. And, and the New York fans love that. Like you said, I mean, I went to Philadelphia at the end of the 2006 season and I had texts and phone calls, not really texts because we didn't have texting phones back then, but I got phone calls from a lot of players that had played in Philly and they said, Oh man, you're going to hate it. Those fans there are awful. They're just, uh, they're brutal on their hometown players. And I'm like, all right, uh, you know, I'll see what happens. And so I got a friend that lives in Philadelphia and I remember like the first or second night I'm there and there's a guy on third base and uh, well, actually I played right field the first, first night I'm in, in town and routine ground ball to third base. And my job as a right fielder when there's ground ball to first base is do what I go back up the throw at first base. So I run over there to back up the throw and out. No problem. They throw the ball around. So I peel off and I go back to my position and all of a sudden I hear all this clapping, all this clapping. And I was like, I don't know if something happened. I looked around, I look up and they're all like standing up, looking at me that away. Conine, we had a hustle. Conine. No clapping for me by just, they said, you know, the, the guy before me, he never did that. They were, they got so used to him just standing put in right field. He never backed up any bases. I just did my job. I went over there and backed up a base. I ran back. They said that, that away to hustle. I'm like, Oh, all right. So later that game, you know, I got a guy on third base and, uh, I end up popping it up. You know, I didn't get my job done. I'm hit, supposed to hit a sack fly there or a ground ball, or whatever, to get that guy in. And I'm, I'm livid. So I take my bat and I slam it into the ground and I run to first base and I peel off and I'm like, all right, they're going to let me have it on this one. And I'm about to go in the dugout and some guy yells, that away, Conan, get him next time. You're all right. And I'm like, I'm like, what the heck's going on here? I thought, you know, I was going to get roasted, you know, the first yeah. time I, I make it out where I'm supposed to. And my buddy, I talked to him the next day. He was at that game that night. And he goes, he goes, that's why they're going to love you here. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you, you care for one, you care. And two, you play the game hard and you play it right. That's all they want. They want to, they respect that. So, you know, I think it's like that in New York as well. You play the game hard, you play the game, right. You show that you care and you care about winning and the fans will treat you as such. I really do believe in that too. And that's why I feel like a lot of it is in your control. Obviously, if you're hitting a buck 80 at some point, no matter how hard you hustle, they're, they're going to turn on you. But absolutely, it, 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 I think it mitigates a lot of the ups and downs as if you always are, are hustling and you don't see guys backing up throws to first base very often now. I would say more so never. never than than when they do. Uh, Ronald Acuna is not backing up a throw to first from right field. I'm sorry. I've, I've never once seen him do that. So uh, that's just not the nature of the game today. But 
that also shows to gather yeah, more harsh, but these are some of the best baseball fans in terms of just knowing the game. How many different places are, are they cheering you on for backing somebody up or how many are even looking for that? Uh, that's the, that's the push and pull of, of a knowledgeable uh passionate fan base is there's positives and and there's negatives and you know you experienced a fan base that could disappear you know in the snap of a finger with the marlins but show up big time in the big moments so it's like what do you prefer you prefer the empty stadium uh when you're struggling or do you prefer the packed stadium of people yelling at you when you're struggling what's what's better well, for like I said earlier, we're we're entertainers and we're athletes, and we want to play in front of people. Our, our home crowd, uh, there's nothing like being in front of a packed house in your home stadium. That's what we live for. So I would much rather be in front of forty thousand people, regardless. I mean, if I'm struggling, they boo me. Hey, that's the nature of the game. I understand that, but I also want them cheering for me when I'm doing well. And you feed off that kind of energy. You feed on that uh, excitement that uh, a packed stadium, because they're going to boo the other team. You know, they're going to be all over the other team all the yeah. time, and that that just fuels the fire. That fuels that that stokes that competitive balance or that competitive spirit in you. So, I would much rather play in front of a full packed house, regardless of their reaction to me, than than an empty stadium. Last thing I'll say on the Mets situation here, Javi Baez was the guy that Francisco Lindor wanted. That's why they went and got him. They have the Puerto Rican connection. They're great friends. And that makes sense. But Francisco Lindor was kind of in this whole thing with him. And it's almost like when you have your best friend in class and you're not going to pay attention at all because your best friend's sitting next to you in class and you're not going to be productive. It seems like, they're in cahoots on this, right? Like this was something that they probably talked about in the clubhouse. They were like, Hey, why don't we do this next time we go out there? And when you think about it from that perspective, Baez will be gone. Lindor's got like 10 more years, another decade here. And right now, no one's taking that damn contract on. I can promise you that no one wants that deal. And that's pretty terrifying six months into it that nobody would touch that thing. How much of this is a Lindor problem with the Javi Baez situation? And do you think that it was something that almost was like brought out because his friend came along and kind of made him more comfortable to, to go out and do something instead of doing it on his own? And I was also shocked to see Kevin Pillar get in on this too. Kevin Pillar sitting like 210. Yeah, it, it doesn't do anybody any good, uh, especially in the first year of a long-term deal, a, a mega long-term deal. Uh, Lindor, listen, New York, they want you to they want you to win. They want you to succeed. They want you to be a good player. They want you to be a stand-up guy to the media. They love all that stuff. When you're a, a subpar performer with a multi-multi, it's a blue-collar town. I think the the Mets fans are that blue-collar type, type fan base that they want to see a guy play his ass off every single night, regardless of how much he's making. But if you're making what Lindor is going to be making over the, over the next 10 years, they want exceptional performance out of that position and that kind of money. So to kind of throw egg in the face of a fan base that uh, is basically paying your salary. That's um, that's a rough road ahead for Lindor. Um, I do agree that, yeah, they had talked about this Baez and him or talk, talked about this and said, you know, I can't believe these fans and they're, you know, the way they're treating us, blah, blah, blah. Hey, you know, like I said, they don't necessarily have the right to do that. Um, 
And some of the things that when it gets into more personal stuff with uh, uh, personal attacks on your family or, yeah, or spewing racial stuff, that's that takes it to another level. But to be able to to cheer or boo for your team, that's 100 percent fine. And uh, if you're playing poorly in New York, they're going to boo you. That's all there is to it. And Lindor should have known that before he signed and expected that when he doesn't perform that he's going to get booed and it's going to be a long, long decade. If uh, he continues down this path, I, I can't even imagine how ugly it would get if it continued that way. And don't forget they've got Robbie Cano coming back next year for on a $28 million contract. They got a mulligan for one year because of the suspension. I'm sure they're thrilled about that, but now they've got another big personality coming back into the fold as well. It's just a bit of a disaster there. And it's going to be fun in a way to kind of just watch and see how the Mets continue to unfold. <laughs> because I mean, it's free content. I mean, look at us we're we're halfway through and we just had to talk about the Mets. I mean, they make it really easy on us. Uh, but before I wanted to talk about the minor league housing situation, because it's something that obviously you're familiar with, uh, whether it was from when you were playing or with Griff playing right now. Uh, J.J. Cooper of Baseball America did an amazing job writing uh, a really detailed piece with a lot of anecdotes and a, a lot of just peeling back the curtain on what's going on in the minor leagues. Honestly, this was something I wanted to do, uh, that I wanted to put this kind of story together. I just, with the launch of just baseball, just didn't get a chance to get to it. And now I'm reading this and I was like, man, this is exactly how I wanted to do it. But Cooper killed it, which you know makes it makes me feel a lot better. And uh, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'm looking forward to unpacking that in a second. But I want to get to the jersey first because there's a chance it might be a Mets jersey, and if that's the case, I want to stick with it because right now I see gray with blue piping. Uh, I'm going to assume it's an old Mets jersey, but I'm not positive. Good call. Good call. Mets. All right. <sighs> okay, I'm halfway there. Can you give me the uh, the decade? Hmm. Old. Uh, I'm going to say 70s. 70s. 70s Mets. Gary Carter. Good guess. Just because he was a good guy. No. I'm guessing good guys, you know? Yeah, like no, no. Gary it's Carter, always, I, it's I, always I, a good I, guy. Any jersey that I have is a good guy. I don't <clears throat> particularly uh, never asked for jerseys from guys that I didn't appreciate on the field or uh, as people. So this guy was a phenomenal guy. And he also uh, has another uh, passion or had another passion that uh, I'm passionate about with uh, wine. So <laughs> I know you're a big wine guy. I know, this, uh, I know that probably doesn't help you at all. And you probably didn't know that this guy made his own wine. Tom Seaver. Yes. Ooh, nicely done. It was not because of the hint at all, but that is, that is awesome. That might be one of the coolest jerseys you have donned here. Showing it off. You can, you can see it on yeah. YouTube. Uh, we've got the episodes on YouTube. You're, by the way, uh, I'm really excited for people to be able to kind of see your whole setup now. We've got all of the episodes being uploaded onto our YouTube at Just Baseball Fans, and you can check it out over there. But back to Seaver, the late Tom Seaver, one of the greatest. I mean, I think about the, the back knee drag, right? Like the dirt always on his leg because he just used his lower half so well. Obviously, you never faced him, right? But no. you, you were able to to get acquainted with Tom Seaver. Or what, what's the backstory there? 
not much. I just met him uh, once in New York. And, um, you know, that was in my phase trying to get these jerseys signed that uh, kind of went through all the rosters and and teams and guys that were affiliated, Hall of Famers that were affiliated with organizations still. So uh, he was gracious enough to sign this for me. And, you know, just every person that I've ever talked to that that knew Tom Seaver or had any run-ins with Tom Seaver, just a quality, quality human being, not only obviously a hall of fame pitcher and one of the most dominant uh, pitchers uh, of the seventies and maybe of all time. Uh, And you talk about that drop and drive, which was characteristic of him that, you know, he kind of uh, revolutionized the pitching as far as getting your lower body involved in creating power. And he had one of the best fastballs uh, in this game. And and the one that has ever seen over 3000 strikeouts. And like you said, that knee would be dirty at the end of the game, which is uh, you don't see that. I don't know if I've ever seen it uh, anybody else, but Tom Seaver, but I don't even uh, know how you throw like that, but it yeah. works for him. And what's really interesting, one point that you bring up that he revolutionized pitching in, in some ways. And what really stands out to me is I have the numbers up in front of me. 1970 through 1977, he led the year or he led the league, excuse me, in strikeouts per nine every single season. In the 70s, strikeouts were were pretty scarce because he led the league ranging between 7.8 and 9.1 strikeouts per nine. That wouldn't even be in the top 10% in in today's game. Right. And maybe not even top 15%. So it seems like he was one of those first guys that really started racking up the strikeouts a little bit more than, than anybody before him. And he really did that just with the fastball, right? Like what, what was, as someone who didn't get to see Seaver pitch, what was the, the, thing that really made Tom Seaver from a player's perspective special? Was it that the mechanics, like you said, that we hadn't seen before the fastball that we hadn't seen before, like there was Bob Feller, what made Seaver different than Feller in terms of that electric fastball? Well, I think uh, the mechanics, when you look at a guy that uses lower body, the way Tom Seaver did and the way he delivers the baseball, sometimes, you know, a 94, 95 mile an hour fastball from one guy, uh, is definitely not like a 95 mile hour from another guy. There are some guys that I saw so well, even though they threw the ball through a wall. Uh, we talked about Billy Koch, for instance, he threw 101 miles an hour, but I saw his fastball so well, it didn't bother me at all. But then there's Paul Quantrill that had an 89 mile an hour fastball that just his mechanics, the way he released the ball, hit it so well that it was on me before I even knew it. And Tom Seaver had that four seam fastball that was up in the zone a lot. Uh, Jim Palmer had a fastball like that too that almost seemed to rise uh as you get so tom sear dropped and drove from such a low angle it almost seemed like the ball would go up i mean it can't physically go up but it seemed like it went up rising into the strike zone rather than than sinking or going down so i think it was just a, a special pitch that nobody else threw at that time and when you don't see anything uh that anybody else throws it's gonna fool and surprise major league hitters all the time he was probably a high spin rate guy before spin rates were a thing. Uh, and that's what's everybody is pursuing that fastball that doesn't drop much, right? The, the limited vertical movement so that it feels like it's rising. So it looks like it's rising. And uh, I'm going to go back and watch some Tom Seaver highlights later. So thank you for that. Uh, but one of the best, the late great and uh, a Mets legend talk about somebody that the fan base really latched onto and is, you know, going to continue to pay tribute to uh, probably 
forever, as long as the Mets exist, uh, because of what he did on the on and off the field uh, as a ball player. And now I didn't know he was a wine guy as well. So uh, nice that you guys. Yes. So um, Gordon Thomas Seaver is his wine. GTS wine is their uh, flagship Cabernet out in uh, California, bought a piece in uh, Napa Valley, uh, created this winery um, decades ago. And it is really, really good stuff. I mean, I remember buying the first bottle I, I saw at an auction. And of course I was drawn to, because it's Tom Seaver and he, I didn't even know he produced wine then, but it was a 2008 uh, GTS Cabernet that was rated like 98 points. And I remember buying a, a three bottle lot. I think it was on this auction site that I got. And it's one of the best wines I've ever had. It's really, really? that good. And, you know, obviously when you get a baseball connection of, of an oh, awesome yeah. guy and a hall of famer, it just makes it taste, I think that, that much better. So hundred um, percent, you know, the, op- the uh, winery still in operation and uh, they put out some really good stuff. When's the Conine Cabernet coming out or, or whatever else you're going to do here? When's the Conine <laughs> brand? I've talked wine? about it. I've talked about it, but man, uh, land out in Napa is so incredibly expensive now. It's like just to start up and, and get going is almost impossible now. It'll be 10 years before you even see uh, a first bottle of wine because you got to plant your grapes and you need time for those to grow. Really six years from when you first put a grape in the ground, you're about six years from where your first vintage comes out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't have that kind of, I don't kind of have that glue right now. So no, that, that sounds pretty brutal, but that could be a good old like retirement, half retirement thing. Like wait, oh, I'd, I'd be love to take on that hobby. That'd be really Yeah, cool. When you just like got nothing to do. That's a great hobby, but you mentioned it's hard to really find anything out there. It's really expensive. And in a forced transition, housing in the minor leagues, very expensive uh, because relative to what they're making, it doesn't really make sense uh, monetarily, right? It doesn't at all. A lot of times they're lucky to be in the green at all, given what the players are making and the fact that they have to provide their own housing. And even though they've upped the salaries for minor league players, it's still meager. It's still hardly enough. And if you average it out for all the hours that they have to put into baseball, it's, it's relatively close to or below minimum wage. The thing that I think not a lot of people knew, because everybody knew that everybody knew the minor league players are underpaid. I don't know how many people knew how brutal the housing situation is. And it's not just unique to certain organizations. It's, it's almost every single one besides the Astros. Why are teams not investing in the housing of their players? For me, I look at something like this and I would think, okay, I'm putting $6 million into a, a one singular player with my first round pick, $30 million in a bonus pool for one draft class. Why am I not, or whatever it is, probably a little bit less than that, but why would I not invest a little bit more so that those players don't have to wonder where they're sleeping or sleep on a couch when they're trying to climb their way to my big league club? Why is this something that just is not accepted and universally accepted among major league baseball? It's just, it's mind boggling to me. It is mind boggling. And it's always been like that. You know, when I first signed my first contract back in 1987, I made $725 a month in a ball. And, you know, that was 30 some years ago, 30, 34 years ago, which is crazy to think that until the salaries just increased. And we're talking last year uh, when Griffin, my son, was going to go play a ball monthly salary in a ball when he first started was twelve hundred dollars a month. 
So in 37 years, it had gone from 725 to $1,200 a month, which is, what's that, like a less than 1% increase? And in, in, it, it doesn't even outpace inflation. Not even close to outpacing inflation. So when you have, like you said, you got your guys, these are your guys, your, your organization has drafted you. Now you go to a ball and you got to find everything on your own. You got to find your own housing. We had five guys in a house uh, when I was in a ball. Thank God I had my own bed, but there were times when I slept on a floor, when I slept on a couch and the next year when I went to a ball, it was 850 bucks. And I had to fight for those extra $25 a month. You know, they wanted to give me eight, eight twenty-five, and I had to fight for eight fifty. And then when I got to double A, it was 1200. So single A and double A were the same 37 years later. Um, they just bumped it up to 2000 a month for a ball, 2,400 a month for, for double A uh, that's pre-tax. So now you're looking for housing, which is so scarce right now. You can't hardly find anything. No one's given short-term leases. And when you do find something, you can't afford it. You have to have so many guys crammed into one place that uh, it's really uncomfortable living conditions. On top of that, you're a professional athlete and you're expected to go out there every single day. Baseball is an every single day type sport and perform at your highest level, even though you're sleeping on a floor or maybe you're it's insane. It really is insane. And, and like you said, for a big, a big league club to just think about the the welfare of the people that are in their organization that they're supposedly taking care of uh, the, the amount of money or effort that it would take to just provide housing for those guys, I think would make a world of difference. You've seen what the Houston Astros organization has done over the last few years. Um, and I don't think that's by accident. They've created um, quite a culture within their organization. They bring up their own players um, and they're happy there. And a, and a happy player is going to provide better offense. They're going to they're provide more um, return on, on their investment. And I think it, it's, you know, when you all think about the minor leagues, although probably only less than 10% of those guys are ever going to make it to the big leagues. So I don't know if that's part of the mindset of the major league clubs is like, Hey, we don't really care. So these guys uh, aren't going to be here. The guys that, aren't 90% of the guys aren't even going to make it to our big league club. We just need to fill rosters. So our prospects can play. So in that case, they're just tossing them out. Like we don't care about them and you just let them fend for themselves. And our, our prospects, hopefully they got a big enough bonus where they can afford something a little bit better and live a little bit better. Um, but who knows the 25th round guy that, well, now it's only 20 rounds, but the 20th round guy might pan out to be a superstar. This Albert Pujols was 16th round. You never know nowadays. And if they're taken care of and welcomed into your family, I think there's a better chance those guys might produce returns on the big league side. Well, and oftentimes there's just really talented players that didn't get big signing bonuses and now they're, they're living difficult lives. And yes, generally speaking, the players that you invest more into will probably be better off in terms of their day to day. But somebody that you just saw play, it's a, it's a specific name. If you're not a Marlins fan, you probably won't be familiar with him, but he plays with your son, Griffin, J.D. Orr. And I don't mean to single J.D. out, but this is in his defense phenomenal ball player to me i think he's a big leaguer what kind of big leaguer that will you know we'll find out but at the very least that guy's a bench player that can play all over he's a gamer like you always say really fast all of that aside he was a senior got two thousand five hundred dollars as a signing bonus out of right state so that doesn't do anything 
Absolutely nothing. He's living off of his monthly, you know, and I don't know what his financial situation is, but let's just say he's normal dude, middle class, whatever situation. J.D. Orr is playing out of his mind. He's having a phenomenal, phenomenal year. He's had a spectacular minor league career and probably going to force his way up to the big leagues at some point. If he doesn't, and up until then, he's just struggling to make ends meet, even though he's performing better than a majority of players. So, like, that's a perfect example of that guy's playing better than a lot of first-round picks, and he's got a tougher situation. At this point, don't you want to help that guy? Don't you want to give that guy a better situation so he can continue to develop? Like, that's where, to me, it just makes sense to just take care of everybody. It's not going to kill you. You can afford it. It, you could literally set up dorm style housing and you'd be good. It, it would be taken care of. And, and that's where to me, I, I don't know if it's more of the lack of representation or is it just that the teams really don't care because players, they've got their own you know battles to, to fight. That's really what it is when it comes to the MLBPA. They're not going to fight for the minor leaguers. It's almost like, it's a rite of passage. They're like, I went through that. Maybe you know you can go through that too. Now we look at it. Who's going to step up for those guys? You have the writers doing it. And then I think that's why JJ Cooper's piece is so important, but who's representing these minor leaguers at this point, they don't have a seat at the table and negotiations for the CBA. So who takes care of them? <laughs> nobody. Yeah, there is nobody. Um, you know, uh, I think the independently owned teams, you know, they do a much better job. Some of them do a much better job. The ownership of those teams do a better job of at least helping the guys get acclimated when they get to their city. They might have contacts at uh, certain housing facilities like the, hey, keep this block of rooms open for our guys because they're guaranteed you're going to give you at least six months of rent. Um, but more and more times you find that's not even the case. These guys are just let out into a city they've never been to before and they're fend for themselves. And by the way, when you break camp, you got to be, you're playing games at your city two days later and you got to find, you know, they'll give you, I think two or three nights in a hotel. Um, but these guys can't afford a hotel for the entire season. Uh, they do pay for hotels on the road. Uh, thank goodness. But still you're responsible for two weeks uh, out of every month and you can't, Rent, you can't get a hotel room for, for two weeks out of the month. That's takes away your entire salary. So they end up trying to find housing. Um, and a bunch of guys are, I think Griffin said when he went to Beloit this year, there's 10 guys in one house. Yeah. I mean, 10 Griffin players in one house. Griffin was living on a farm. Griffin was living on a farm and a, a Airbnb on a farm in uh, South or North um, central Illinois. And it turned out to be, that was a nice place to, I know to he, he was, he was, that was like one of the best situations. Yeah. You know, like that, that's the craziest thing. And, and, you know, Griffin was fine. I know he wasn't complaining about it, but he, he was just texting me like, this is the best we could find. Like this is, this is what, what it is. And he was living with two other ball players, and, and that was the setup. And, you got to be resourceful. We talked about it in the past. The story I wrote on, on Jack Oboski, Griffin's former teammate, who converted a school bus into an RV because he made he f- figured that that would make more sense financially. And it has for him. Like if players are needing to jump through those hoops, it just seems like you're setting them up to really not have success and to really have way more stressors on their mind than, than the other things that they should have to worry about. And I think that's why you see a big league advance come out here. And that's a story that we wrote about on just baseball.com with, with just baseball 
we interviewed uh, Michael Schwimmer, the founder of Big League Advance, which is a company that basically that they determine which players they want to invest in with a complex algorithm. And obviously they're not going to divulge that, but players that they think are worthy of an investment, they offer you $50,000 for 1% of your future earnings. And you can scale that up as much as you want. Agents hate it. Agents absolutely despise it. Scott Boris has come out and said, this is terrible. You know, it's taking advantage of the players. I don't think it is at all. I think actually the system currently in place right now in the minor leagues is taking advantage of the players. What are your thoughts on a situation like that? Like, would that be something that you would have been interested in as a ball player? Uh, if somebody approached you and said, hey, I'll give you $100,000 for a couple percent of your future earnings when you were in high A or, or before your MVP season in double A? Like, is that something that is enticing? Because so, it seems like a lot of players are, are taking that security and are willing to give it up. Fernando Tatis has to cough up $27 million to Michael Schwimmer, and I don't think he's too upset about it. Wow. Well, that, that surprised me a little bit that Tatis went that route just because of his lineage, uh, the way yeah, he's that, done that was the surprising part to me, but Tatis did it. And hey, he said it kind of made him, it made him not have to worry about dipping into other areas. He got a $300 million contract, so he's fine, but he does have to yield 27 million of that. Right. And that's how Schumer's going to make his money. And that's how off that one contract, he can give out a lot of money to a lot of players. And if, I don't know what their algorithm is. I'm sure it predicts what percentage of players are actually going to make it to the major leagues and make some money uh, to pay them back. But um, yes, it's enticing. These guys have nothing. You know, if you got a guy that's going to offer you uh, five or six figures to live on, basically live on, um, I think a lot of guys, that's a tough decision for them. You know, if they're confident enough to say, you know what? I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to, I'm going to pay the price right now because I know that I'm going to make it and I feel confident that I'm going to be a big leaguer for a long time. Um, but other guys in the fence are like, I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. And these guys are going to invest that kind of money in me. Some are going to take that chance. And like you said, if you're uh, going to be a big leaguer for a long time, yes, that's a chunk. Um, obviously, it sounds huge for Tatis only because he signed that monstrous deal. Uh, but other guys might gladly pay that back, knowing that they had comfort and that probably helped in their development to get to the big leagues because Absolutely. they had nothing to worry about. Exactly. That's the big point. And to me, the existence of a big league advance kind of just exploits the the issue in the system, right? That those players shouldn't be uh, so vulnerable to opportunities like that and, and shouldn't be jumping at something like that. It, it should be a, a sense of security. The last thing I want to say on this is I do have, you know, those faceless Twitter profiles or whoever it is hiding behind the keyboard saying, these players make their own decisions. Nobody's making them play baseball. They could go get a normal job. They can go do whatever. Uh, nobody's making them play baseball. Can you please reply to that from a baseball player's perspective? Because those comments make me uh, just incredibly agitated. Well, those people had never probably have ever had a dream that they're chasing. Um, and for most everybody in professional baseball, they've been chasing this dream for their entire life. They started playing when they were seven years old. They've invested uh, countless hours and dollars and time of their life spent on creating and perfecting a craft that is the most difficult thing to do in sports is hit a baseball. So um, I don't, I would, 
if I were you, if I were anybody, I would just skip right over those comments that's because do. they absolutely mean nothing to anybody that's uh, been in this game or knows anything about this game. Um, I think they're probably jealous too at the same time, knowing that these guys get to play a game for a living. Yeah. And um, they're even more jealous when they make it to the big leagues and they make millions of dollars and for being able to play a game for a living and they're stuck in a miserable, they're stuck in a miserable job. They hate going to every single day. And so they get on Twitter and they may put these comments that uh, absolutely have no basis whatsoever. And then, like you said, well, that's they're, what, that's they're, what they're profileless, pictureless profiles that, that they can just spew whatever they want and with no repercussions. Well, that's what Twitter's for. You just described the definition of Twitter. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that, that whole component bothers me because guys that go play in college, you can't even get a full scholarship in college. A lot of guys have, have student loan debt. If they want to go play at a Duke, if they want to go play at a Vanderbilt or, or, or any of those schools, if you're not top, top, top of your, of your recruiting class, maybe what one or two guys gets, gets a full ride. If that, not, not like, even that anymore. Yeah. Not, they won't even give it to one guy. Because you only got 11.7 to spread out over 35 guys. So if you oh, give. This is true. You're, you're the right guy to ask here. I, I'm almost if forgot. You give, Associate head baseball coach at FIU. Give me the whole, give me the whole uh, explanation here. So you got baseball has 11.7. I don't even know where they come up with these numbers. 11.7 scholarships, 11 and three quarter scholarships to spread out over 35 players on your roster. So I think essentially you could give 33% to all 35 guys. If you want to give something to everybody, 33% could go to everybody. So when you start giving more and more to your top recruits or top prospects, say three guys get full scholarships. Well, that's three. Now you only have 8.7 for the next 33 guys or the next 32 guys. And that takes away a lot of money. And it, your hands are tied. You can't recruit really. You can't give away scholarships. And that's across the board. It's not like Duke or uh, Vanderbilt gets 25 scholarships and then FIU only gets 11. That's NCAA rules, 11.7 scholarships for Division One baseball. And um, for a roster that big, that's, that's a lot. Where, you know, football, you get 80. And they're all full scholarships, 80 yeah. full scholarships for football. And I get it. Football brings in the revenue. That is what drives every athletic department is football revenue for TV, for fans, for uh, ticket revenue. That's what fuels all of NCAA sports is football and, and basketball for some schools. But uh, for baseball, it's, it's a challenge. It's always a challenge for recruiting, recruiting class. Do you think it would be fair if they changed it by conference because there's certain conferences that bring in more money. I, the SEC brings in money baseball wise. Like they legitimately, some of those schools do better. I, I would love to see the numbers. I'm sure football and, and basketball probably still have a leg up, but at Vanderbilt, that's got to be the closest where you got baseball is probably right. Mississippi least, state, Mississippi state. Yeah. They, they do crazy. They get too. 10 grand every game, every 10,000. Every 10,000 LSU, another stadium that's packed eight to 10,000 every single game. So those programs bring in a wealth of revenue, which they can do things for their players. Um, creature comfort wise, they can't give them money. Obviously now you're seeing that the NCAA passed, they can make money off their name and likeness, which will help, but really not for baseball. Baseball is not that high profile sport that you're going to be able to get a national deal. Like, like a Alabama football player or a Alabama 
it would have to be local, local stuff. Yeah. It's going to be local stuff. Um, you know, being able to represent a car dealership, maybe if you're a star baseball player or, you know, get some local revenue like that, which will help some of these guys. But overall, it's still a struggle for families to come up with what you can't come up with in uh, what the scholarship doesn't cover. Cause it's, it's expensive everywhere. It's not just, you know, if you're an in-state school, you might get a, a pretty good uh, economical type tuition. But if you're out of state, it's crazy how much these schools cost. That's the problem. I feel like if you're a private school, the odds are kind of stacked against you in recruiting in some ways, right? How do you compete when your tuition is so much more? And as a coach, you can't really do anything about that. You can only do so much with academic scholarships, maybe if a player is really smart, but oftentimes a lot of players struggle to make the grades meet, you know, a lot of the players are focused on, on baseball, which even I was to a degree, right? Like I, that, I wasn't focused on school to the degree that I was focused on baseball. So it, it is really difficult for those that might be still in high school that are getting recruited right now, or for a parent that might be listening uh, for their son or daughter that's getting recruited. How much does it help to be a great student for you as a coach now that you're recruiting, right? Are, are, are you able to save some scholarships through maybe academic scholarships that maybe a recruit is able to qualify for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, for a couple of reasons. When you've got a great student in high school, uh, there are a lot of grants available out there for, for smart kids or kids that have worked really hard and gotten good grades. Uh, admissions. We've got a couple guys right now that uh, aren't allowed to practice with us come in the fall because they had bad grades coming out as recruits. And they're not if they do well in the fall then they can join the team in the spring. So it's tough to recruit guys who don't have good grades. But when you're giving, you know, a 35 percent scholarship at, you know, uh, uh, FIU, so to speak, they can make up that other money through Pell Grants and other grants that uh, are academically uh, motivated. So they're in, in theory could be a full scholarship available to them, not just from athletic side, but when you pair it with the academic side, they can get their school paid for. And that should be a goal of every student athlete is I know it's tough when you're focusing on your sport and you think, yeah, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Well, it doesn't always work out that way because even for a college player to go to college or a high school player to go to college, you're talking less in single digit percentage wise, who gets to go play college. And then from college to the pros, you're another single digit percentage of who actually signs professional contracts. So first and foremost has got to be education. Um, if you really want to focus on that and go a, a long way with it, you can get your school paid for. So on top of your academic, uh, your, your athletic money, you get academic money and, you know, you got to build a base for your future and that's going to be through school. It's crazy. Isn't it crazy? It is crazy. You, you went to UCLA to study. I did. I had no thoughts of being a pro baseball player whatsoever. Yeah. I was a mediocre college pitcher. I was going to finish out my four years at uh, UCLA and kind of find my way yeah. into the business world and go from there. That's the amazing thing, right? And, and how many players go in to play baseball and then don't end up playing baseball, right? So for you, you were like baseball was kind of the avenue to get into a great school like UCLA and still get the opportunity to play a game that you really enjoyed and see how it went, right? That was pretty much the, the approach from you, right? That was it. For me, it was I'm using um, baseball to get me into a school. And yeah. from there on, 
you know, that I, I got in. So you get into a great college because you're a good baseball player. Uh, then it was up to me to get my degree and get an education and then go out in the business world and, and, and make my life. I mean, obviously, uh, think things worked out really well for me and, um, but it wasn't my plan. That was not what I planned to do. Well, that degree is going to come in really in handy when you open your winery in Napa Valley and uh, you're in class right now. Did you? I am in class. I got to, I, I actually got to do some homework. I got a couple of assignments right. to do tonight that <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> the deadline is midnight tonight. So I'm procrastinating just like I did wow. 35 years ago. Midnight assignment to get that done. I know, get that I know. Done. it's all online. So it's 1159 submission. You got to have it in by then. Word of advice in this, in this technological world of school. 1201 doesn't play. I tried it. It doesn't I play. I know. It doesn't work. I, I tried the 1201 one time. Sorry, Wi-Fi cut out. Not hearing nope, it. Not an excuse. Not hearing it. Not so, an excuse. Not even if you're Jeff Conine. It's it's not gonna play, I don't think. So good luck. Yep. Get I'm a student like everybody else. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you're just another student. So good luck. Get that done. Uh, I'm excited to continue to hear the the chronicles of Jeff Conine's uh, scholastic experience uh, as you go. Through and we get practice. We're starting practice next Monday or next Tuesday. Say, Sorry, next Tuesday. More, so back on the field. Even more excited to get out there for an FIU ball game. Opening weekend is when? Uh, February, I'd have to check the schedule, but about the third week of February, we're going to start week up. in February. Well, I'll be out there. Uh, we'll see who else we can get out there. I don't think it'll be too cold. It's Florida, but sometimes no, heck, it's going to be perfect. It'll be it's absolutely be perfect. perfect yeah. It's going to be perfect. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm excited for college baseball. It's crazy how quickly that turns back around. February will be here before we know it. Uh, but until then got a lot more baseball to talk about. Uh, my giants, are now in second place, half game behind the Dodgers. So we'll watch that over the weekend and uh, have a little bit of an update on the standings as we go towards the final stretch and get closer to the postseason. But this was a fun one, as always. And hopefully, minor league players will continue to get paid more. Also, quick plug, your son took the lead in the home run race again, overtaking Melendez. Of course, uh, another uh, FIU guy with his father being the coach with you. So that's always been fun as well. Uh, we're hoping Griff gets to 40 and we'll bring him on once he gets to 40. He's got to earn that, but we'll yeah, he's got to sure. earn that. Yeah. He's got to, we had a certain level of uh, expectations for our guests. Yeah. 40 homers. That's it. Or throw a hundred like Rob Nett, but yeah. until next time <laughs> we'll see who the next guest is. If they fit that criteria.